Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're on volume six, which is titled, The Natural Law of Gamma. We're actually finishing this book today with chapters 41 through 45. If you've been studying along in our program, you might have read these chapters before class. But if you're joining us for the first time, we'll actually be displaying these chapters on the screen, reading through each one, and then I'll be sharing teachings and then giving you a chance to ask any questions you like on the words of the Buddha. Because when we study with the words of the Buddha, we understand the real true path to enlightenment. Any changes or modifications that have been made since the lifetime of the Buddha are only going to make things more difficult and more challenging for someone who's interested in walking this path because it's a Buddha who discovers the teachings on their own through their own independent journey to enlightenment and they declare the path to enlightenment. They are the originator, the founder, the discoverer of this path to enlightenment. So their words and the way that they speak and the way that they share the teachings is going to be very clear, very concise, and very precise. And once we start modifying that, that's where we actually lead into challenges and difficulties in trying to understand how to actually attain enlightenment. In over 2,500 years, we've had those changes that have happened in the world, and there's very few people who actually study the teachings based on the words of the Buddha. So by you basing your practice in the words of the Buddha, the original source text, the Pali Canon, then you can actually know what the Buddha actually taught but then you don't believe his teachings. You actually learn them, reflect on them, and practice them to independently discover the truth for yourself with guidance from a teacher. And that's what these classes are all about, is giving you a chance to come to class and receive guidance through your own independent journey of learning through these teachings. Then you get a chance to come to class, discuss them, and get any guidance that you might need as part of your development of your practice. Because each one of these chapters, they have the words of the Buddha. Then there's a reference where you can go back and actually see the original source text because these chapters are just excerpts of a longer discourse that the Buddha was speaking. So that reference helps you to go back and actually see the original source text, the entire discourse. And then you're going to see some explanations and things to be reflecting on that I've put into the book underneath of the Buddha's words so that you can then have a way to 
continue to think about the Buddhist teachings and explore them through the eyes of someone who has been dedicated to practicing them and actually teaching them. So these books are all available free of charge. You can just go to buddhadailywisdom.com and from there you'll be able to download the entire book series. And of course if you'd like to print it you can take it and go print it or you can order a printed version from Amazon and they even have Kindle versions as well. So welcome to the class. I'm really pleased that you guys have decided to join, whether you've been joining regularly or this is your first time. Welcome. Pleased to have you as part of our class. Let's go ahead and start the way that we start all of our classes with a brief meditation. We start by just meditating to clear the mind, prepare the mind, and allow us to then focus on the teachings of the Buddha and be able to retain them through our development of our practice through learning the words of the Buddha. As you learn in today's class, you'll be able to retain the teachings much better when you have done some little bit of meditation prior to class. So we usually do just kind of a short meditation. I usually do very little guidance as part of this class because most of the people who join this class are people who have been meditating and have been doing that for a while and have a little bit more of a developed practice. But in our Sunday and Wednesday classes, the group learning program, that's where I provide guidance on all aspects of the path, helping you to develop from the very beginning. So go ahead and take your seat if you're going to do seated or lying or standing and go ahead and get the body comfortable. We'll just do some chants to ease into the meditation and then I'll do some light guidance before I leave you on your own to actually do the work of meditation and then we'll start the rest of our class after that. Ara-ham-sam-ho-to-em-ha-ka-wa-po-tang-ma-ka-wan-ha-ng-a-pi-wa-te-yo-mi-sa-wa-ka-to-em-ha-ka-wa-ta-tam-mo Namasami Supatipano Mahakawato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmo Arahato Bhagavato Arahato Sama Saputasa Napmo Arahato 
विचाचारण सामुनो सखातोरो कावितो अनुतेरो पुरीसा दामासातीसातावा मनुसनं भूतो पाकवाते You should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just start establishing a nice, steady, consistent breath. The pace of your breath isn't going to necessarily be in sync with the guidance that I'm providing. Wherever you get to the next inhale, breathe in through the nose, nice and gradual not forced or controlled, just a nice steady inhale through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And when you're ready, then exhale gradually through the nose, experiencing the full exhale, not forcing it or controlling it, just a nice natural breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. Focus the mind on the breath the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. That's the present moment. Whenever the mind is not on the breath, in the present moment, wherever you observe that, cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. I'm going to leave you to do this work. Just focusing on the breath. Wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, no need to judge the thoughts, analyze them, label them, or figure out where they're coming from at all. Just wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out.
We'll just come together as a class and start to study the words of the Buddha. Welcome to all of you guys, whether you're having joined us multiple times or you're joining us for the first time. We join together each Saturday for the Pali Canon and English study group, studying the words of the Buddha. And then on Sunday and Wednesday, we have the group learning program, which is to help people really get started and really understand the framework of the Buddhist teachings in order to be able to have a structure and a foundation moving forward. And then that's in volume one in the group learning program. And then here in the Pali Canon and English program, we study from volumes two through 13 in this book series, the words of the Buddha, the path to enlightenment revealing the hidden. So what we do in this class is somebody will read the chapter, then I'll share any teachings on the chapter, and then we'll just open up to any questions that you guys have. And the way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section and our moderators will see that. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any question or follow-up questions directly. 
So I'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you guys and we'll progress through our class this way. Hello teacher, let's go to Miranda for chapter 41. The true definition of a being. Venerable sir, it is said a being, a being. In what way, venerable sir, is one called a being? One is stuck, Radha, tightly stuck in desire, lust, excitement, and craving for form. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck, in desire, lust, excitement, and craving for feeling, for perception, for volitional formations, choices and decisions, for consciousness. Therefore, one is called a being. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this is where the Buddha describes what a living being is. There's other parts in his teachings where he describes that we should have compassion for all living beings and loving kindness for all living beings. So here he's giving a definition of what a living being is. And it goes back to what he shares in his version of the Four Noble Truths when he talks about the five aggregates. The five aggregates are form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and consciousness. Here in this chapter, in my explanation, I've given a definition of each of these so that you can see that a living being is going to have physical form, the physical body. So for us human beings, we have this physical body. For animals, there's this physical body. For Beings in the hell realm, afflicted spirit, and heavenly realm, there isn't a physical form. It's a formless realm. And then there's feelings, which are the results of experiences in the mind through the six sense bases. The six sense bases are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. This is how we experience things in the mind is through our sense bases, drawing in through contact. We then become aware of this contact, and this is what produces feelings in the mind. And then there's perceptions. This is a belief or opinion based on how things seem. And then the volitional formations or choices or decisions that we make. And then consciousness is the mind or awareness. And here you can see that as a human being, we have all five of these things. And so do animals and other living beings as well. But then there's things that people oftentimes ask about something like a tree or a plant. You know, a lot of people consider these plants to be alive. But if you look at the definition of the Buddha and what he describes as a living being, a plant isn't a living being. While we may consider it to be alive in a certain sense of the word, and we like to ensure that we have a certain amount of these plants around the world to provide us oxygen and resources, food, building materials, things like this, they're not a actual living being. This is why we can chop down a tree if we need to make something or we can harvest fruits or vegetables off of a plant because we're not killing a living being when we're harvesting fruit or we're harvesting a tree, for example, because while a tree has a physical form, it doesn't have feelings through the six sense bases because it doesn't have the six sense bases. It also doesn't have perceptions. It doesn't have beliefs or opinions about how things should be. 
It also doesn't have volitional formations. It's not able to make choices and decisions. A tree isn't able to say, you know, I don't kind of like being on this hill. It's kind of too windy here. I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to walk and go replant myself somewhere else. A tree doesn't have the ability to make those decisions. And then, of course, there isn't a consciousness or a mind. So this is how you can determine what a living being is and what a living being isn't. And the Buddha here is describing that living beings are stuck or they're having this desire, this lust, this craving to exist, having this form, this physical form. And he describes this in the Four Noble Truths about how beings cause their own discontentedness through clinging and craving and holding on to these five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is what causes the mind to experience discontentedness. So here, this is just a further explanation to help us understand what is a living being. So then we can apply it to things like the first precept. The first precept, if you read the words of the Buddha, he talks about living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, ensuring that we're not killing other living beings. And this is where he gives the definition of what a living being is. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. Well, so as for uh, beings in the three formless realms, uh, do they all have uh, the four aggregates? They have the four aggregates. They just don't have the fifth one, the physical form. They are formless beings, but they do have feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. Well, thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. Chapter 42, The Nutriment of Consciousness. The Venerable Moli Faguna said to the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable Sir, who consumes the nutriment consciousness? Not a valid question, the perfectly enlightened one replied. I do not say one consumes. If I should say one consumes, in that case, this would be a valid question. Venerable sir, who consumes? But I do not speak thus. Since I do not speak thus, if one should ask me, Venerable sir, for what is the nutriment consciousness a condition? This would be a valid question. To this, the valid answer is the nutriment consciousness is a condition for the production of future renewed existence. When that which has come into being exists, the sixth sense basis comes to be with the sixth sense basis as condition, contact. Venerable Sayer, who makes contact? Not a valid question. The perfectly enlightened one replied. I do not say one makes contact. If I should say one makes contact, in that case, this would be a valid question. Venerable sayer, who makes contact? But I do not speak thus. Since I do not speak thus, if one should ask me, Venerable sayer, with what, as condition, does contact come to be? This would be a valid question. To this, the valid answer is, with the six sense basis as condition, Contact comes to be, with contact as condition, feeling. Venerable Sayer, who feels? Not a valid question. The perfectly enlightened one replied, I do not say one feels. If I should say one feels, 
In that case, this would be a valid question. Vulnerable sir, who feels? But I do not speak thus. Since I do not speak thus, if one should ask me, Vulnerable sir, with what, as condition, does feeling come to be? This would be a valid question. To this, the valid answer, feeling com comes to be is, with contact as condition, feeling comes to be, with feeling as condition, craving. Vulnerable sayer, who craves? Not a valid question, the perfectly enlightened one replied. I do not say one craves. If I should say one craves, in that case, this would be a valid question. Vulnerable sayer, who craves? But I do not speak thus. Since I do not speak thus, if one should ask me, Vulnerable sayer, with what as condition does craving come to be? This would be a valid question. To this, the valid answer is, with feeling as condition, craving comes to be. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, existence. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death. Sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. But Faguna, with the remainderless fading away and elimination of the sixth basis for contact, comes elimination of contact. With the elimination of contact, elimination of feeling. With the elimination of feeling, elimination of craving. With the elimination of craving, elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence, elimination of birth. With the elimination of birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So here, the Buddha is answering questions from a student who doesn't understand the universal truth of non-self. The students continuing to ask questions like, who consumes the nutriment of consciousness? Who makes contact? Who feels? Who craves? These are all questions that if somebody understands the universal truth of non-self, they wouldn't ask who because they understand there is no you there. There's no you, there's no I, there's no me. Instead, it's the mind that is having these experiences. So that's why the Buddha is saying here, not a valid question, because there is no being, for example, even though we're saying what is a being in the previous chapter, even though there is a being, there isn't a you, there isn't one, there isn't you or I or me. It's the mind that is having a certain craving or it's the mind that's having a certain decision. It's the mind that has experiences through these six sense bases and so forth and so on. So what the Buddha is pointing back to here is he's pointing back to dependent origination, which is what we covered in volume five, the volume right before this one. In chapter 14, we discussed dependent origination and we went step by step and shared with you the Buddha's ultimate truth of what leads to discontentedness and ultimately rebirth, starting with ignorance Moving through the 12 steps, he shows how this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, there's certain decisions or volitional formations. 
which then creates consciousness and it moves on from there all the way through to the point where the mind is experiencing discontentedness in continuous birth and the cycle of rebirth. And if you study that chapter in depth in volume five, chapter 14, you can see the truth of exactly how one condition leads to the next and the next and the next and the next. And why this is important is that it helps you to understand how to eliminate discontentedness and how to eliminate continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. Because as long as there's birth, there's going to be aging and death, which means there's going to be sorrow, despair, and displeasure. The continuous birth is why there's continuous death. So the way to escape this whole experience is to train the mind to eliminate that top aspect of dependent origination, which is ignorance. The what you do is you transform the ignorance into wisdom through learning, reflecting, and practicing the Buddhist teachings. You can see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind is gradually improving where the discontentedness is gradually diminishing. So things that once created anger and caused the mind to experience this anger, as you reduce your ignorance through acquiring wisdom and you train the mind deeper and deeper, then you're less in all these other conditions that are arising this discontentedness. So it moves down to maybe frustration or irritation or annoyance. And then over time, as you practice more and more, you get to the point where you've eliminated all discontentedness 100%, where that same situation that there was once the arising of anger in the mind, now there's just peacefulness. The mind is completely stable, steady, and content. And there's joy in the mind that it's not shaken up by whatever experiences happen. But in order to accomplish that, you would need to start off on the path and progress all the way through learning and understanding and training the mind in order to transform this ignorance or unknowing of true reality into wisdom. And that's what the Buddha is helping to do here with this student who isn't aware of this universal truth of non-self and continues to ask questions as if there is a self. The unenlightened mind mistakenly believes and falsely assumes that this physical body or this mind is the self, but it isn't. This is just a physical body and a mind that's come together for this existence. None of this is you. We get this label at birth, and then we start assigning these various attributes to this name that we've been given at birth, and we start thinking that this physical body is us or this mind is us, and we start to then put decisions behind it, which leads ultimately to discontentedness. So here, when the Buddha is describing that this is an invalid question and helping the student to understand what the valid question is, is he saying the nutriment of consciousness is a condition for production of future renewed existence. What the nutriment of consciousness is, is a nutriment is the things that contribute to consciousness. So if the mind continues to have craving, anger, and ignorance, those three poisons or those three unwholesome roots, if you have those at the time of death, then there's going to be continued existence, this future renewed existence. These are the nutriments that continues to allow consciousness to continue. When we extinguish craving, anger, and ignorance in this life, then the mind is enlightened. There's no more discontentedness and therefore there's no more rebirth. 
So the problem that you're solving in this life is you're diminishing and eliminating discontentedness. And you can see the truth for yourself that that's occurring as you're learning and practicing the teachings more closely. But the bigger problem that you're solving is this continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. And in order to accomplish that, you need to extinguish this nutriment of consciousness, the continuous feeding of this consciousness and allowing it to continue to persist and continue to exist. So here, in order to accomplish that, you would need to understand dependent origination and unravel those conditions that are causing continuous discontentedness. So that's why the Buddha is pointing to that here in this teaching that when he talks about here, each of these paragraphs, he says, that which comes into being exists, the six sense spaces come to be with the six sense spaces as condition contact. So he's giving a little piece of dependent origination there. And then in the way that he's following it here is he's giving the next little piece of information of dependent origination here, showing that contact leads to feelings in the mind. And then the next little piece he describes here that with contact and then feelings, then there's craving, right? And then after that, he goes into the full on additional aspects of dependent origination where he says, you know, with condition of craving, then comes the clinging, then comes existence, then comes birth, then comes aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. This is how this whole massive amount of discontentedness comes to be. It's much better to study this as in volume five, chapter 14, because it lays it out very clearly. But once you've read that and you've understand that and you seek guidance on it, you're going to probably need to investigate that multiple times this particular teaching will make more sense, particularly if you understand the universal truth of non-self and you understand dependent origination, you understand what the Buddha is pointing to here, that this is how you eliminate discontentedness is by eliminating ignorance or the unknowing of true reality and all the preceding conditions that are arising discontentedness through these 12 steps of dependent origination. So I'll just go ahead and open up to any questions that you guys have on this chapter. Yes, Yes, sir. You kind of already answered this question, but uh, the question was, do you think that it's helpful for a practitioner to use this interlinking of non-self view and dependent origination when they're first learning about both? Or is it more helpful for them to learn about one than the other and then put the two together? I think it really helps to learn the universal truth of non-self first. And then as you learn that, you're also learning dependent origination. And you might even decide to learn about the six sense bases a bit as well prior to dependent origination because the six sense bases are in there. So it's really dependent origination that pulls it all together. So when you learn the three universal truths, the four noble truths, you learn about the six sense bases, then it really helps you to understand dependent origination much more clearly. Dependent origination is what the Buddha calls the ultimate truth. It's the, the highest, most detailed teaching that really explains everything all in one particular teaching. It explains 
what you're looking to eliminate, which is the ignorance of knowing a true reality. It explains these decisions and consciousness and how it leads to continuous rebirth. It explains discontentedness and how that arises in the mind based on craving. It explains the natural law of gamma, that gamma is created through contact. It explains the central desire through the six sense bases. It explains continuous rebirth and aging and death. So it really consolidates a lot of the teachings all in one place, but it would be really hard to understand dependent origination if you haven't done all that preliminary work in the other parts of the path. So I would suggest doing all the other work first and then starting to look at dependent origination as part of that volume five. And then when you get to something like this in volume six, it'll just make a lot more sense because you've already got all the pieces there. Okay, I understand. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Since this chapter is about realizing non-self, how can one know that they have understood non-self or completely eliminated the, the ego? So non-self and the ego are connected, but non-self is not entirely the ego. So remember in the group learning program when I described the ego, what we use this word ego today didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. He described it as these two separate things, which we're kind of consolidating and calling the ego. And it really helps to see it as two different things. So the personal existence view, that first fetter of the 10 fetters, that's the one aspect of the ego. And then that eighth fetter of the 10 fetters of conceit, which is arrogance, pride, measuring and comparing as superior, inferior, judging of others and judging ourselves, all of this comprises to what we call the ego. So it's not until one has eliminated personal existence view from the 10 fetters and conceit that the ego is completely dissolved. And one of the ways that you'll know that this has been accomplished is that when you see something that somebody is maybe degrading you as a person or talking negatively about you as a person or talking about the physical image of your physical body or certain attributes that your mind might have held onto at one time, you will no longer experience discontentedness. So if somebody calls you fat or ugly, or they say that your hair doesn't look good today, if you get discontent because you're associating this physical body as being who you are as a person, when you hear these negative and degrading things, then the mind's going to get discontent if there's a self there. And if there's this arrogance and pride, then you might even come back with some really unskillful speech, which is going to take the problem, you know, to a lot further degree. There might even be some unskillful actions as well. So we're not describing, you know, what's right or wrong, because of course it would be wholesome for this person to not speak negatively about others and degrade others. But that's their practice. What you're looking at as part of this path to enlightenment is how do you train your mind not to be shaken up by every little thing that happens in the world. If your mind is craving permanence that you expect and crave everybody to talk polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to you, then when someone speaks negative or degrading, your mind's going to be shaken up by it. But if you eliminate the personal existence view, which is thinking that this physical body or this mind is who you are as a person, then when you hear someone speak negatively about the physical body or certain attributes that are being held on into the mind, 
then there's going to be shaken up and experience discontentedness. So once that's gone and you no longer attribute those things to who you are as a person, then people can say whatever they will and you won't be shaken up by it. So if you're holding on not only to the physical body, but say in the mind, like, you know, Basim, you're from Egypt and I was originally born in America and there's other people like Manal who was maybe born in India. There might be someone from Pakistan or Japan or these other places. If we think in the mind, I am American, and then we hear somebody speak negatively about an American, then the person who's associating with I am an American is going to be shaken up by that because they hear something negative. Or even if they hear something positive, then the mind's going to experience these pleasant feelings arise because this person is speaking fondly of someone who's from America. Where is if your mind is just steady and calm and peaceful when you hear someone speaking positively or negatively about an American, then you know that your mind is not associating with that as being who you are as a person. You might know that, yes, this physical body was born in America, but I am not American, right? Because if I am an American and I hold this as part of the self-identity, then I'm going to be shaken up every time somebody says something negative about America or Americans or anything about America as a whole, because the mind's going to want and crave for this permanent positive speech about Americans. And then when we hear something disagreeable, the mind is shaken up by it. So if someone understands the universal truth of non-self, that these aspects of the mind about I am an American or I am a father or I am a Buddhist teacher or I live in Thailand, I live in Chiang Mai, you know, so forth and so on. Any kind of things that the mind can hold on to and identify as this is who I am or certain aspects about the physical body. Maybe someone says, you know, everyone who wears a white shirt and shaves their head is an idiot. They're so stupid. Right. And if you hear that and that is how you associate who you are as someone who wears a white shirt and a shaved head, then when you hear this negative speech, then the mind's going to be shaken up by it. But when you disassociate with all of this, realizing there is no self, that none of these things are the self, then when somebody says that, your mind's not shaken up. You just see it as maybe a lack of their wisdom, their moral conduct, their mental discipline. You might choose to distance yourself from this person because you realize that they're very negative and they're speaking in unskillful ways and it wouldn't be wise maybe to be around them, but you don't experience any painful feelings associated with their speech. And just like if they were saying things agreeable, maybe they were saying, oh, everyone who wears a white shirt and shaves their head is just so handsome and just so intelligent. That can arise pleasant feelings if the mind is clinging and holding on to this self-image or anything that's in the mind as being who you are as a self. In that situation, when you have pleasant feelings and you know the mind's still clinging and holding on to a self, the mind should just be completely steady and stable no matter what is said. And then it's just a matter of you deciding would it make sense for you to continue in a relationship with this person or would would it make sense for you to continue to be around this negativity when somebody is trying to degrade things that are going on in the world but you if you choose to step away from somebody it's important that you don't do that because you think that's going to solve the problem if you hear something negative from somebody and you experience painful feelings 
and you think pushing this person out of your life is going to solve the problem. It's not because the next person who says something negative, the mind is shaken up again. And now you got to push them out of your life. And then the next person and the next person and the next person. This is why the real problem is inside the unenlightened mind where you need to train the mind to realize non-self that none of these things are the self so that then no matter who says what your mind is never shaken up but even in that case where you've realized non-self you might still choose to distance yourself from somebody who is speaking in a negative way because you're just choosing to associate with wholesome people and wholesome conduct but in that situation the mind needs to deeply understand that what they're saying isn't a reflection of you it's a reflection of them because there is no you here and as long as you're choosing to walk away with loving kindness and compassion realizing that that isn't ultimately what you're attempting to accomplish what you're ultimately attempting to accomplish is to eliminate the self this misbelief this misperception this false identification of this physical body and mind is being who you are as a person. And if you can work on that and eliminate that, then really you can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. And even when somebody kind of says the occasional offhanded thing, you might just be like, all right, you know, whatever, you, you don't even, it doesn't even bother your mind. But then if there's someone that's constantly negative, repeatedly over and over and over again, you might just choose, like I said, to kind of distance yourself. But you know that you're not doing that because you're trying to solve the problem of your own mind because pushing this person away isn't going to solve the problem in your own mind. But you're just choosing to associate with wholesome people who are conducting themselves in wholesome ways. So the way that you discover that this personal existence view has been eliminated is the mind won't be shaken up either with pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings neither painful nor pleasant associated with things related to the self-image or the self-identity. And then that's how you know that it's been eliminated. If there's any discontentedness whatsoever, you should investigate what is causing it. It's always going to be craving, desire, attachment, but you need to look to see whether it's associated with the self-image or self-identity, because if it is, it means the mind still hasn't realized non-self yet. Well, so if the mind doesn't experience discontentedness in these situations, one should feel proud for accomplishing this task, right? That's not true, because that would be part of the conceit, because the conceit is arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, and comparing is superior and inferior. So if you allow the pride to come into the mind, this is where the mind then can become arrogant and boastful. And it projects this pride out in the world as if I'm better than you because I've realized non-self. So in order to fully dissolve the ego, not only do you need to eliminate personal existence view, which is realizing non-self, but you also have to eliminate any conceit, arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, and comparing about all things, not just your own development of your own practice, but all things. Because if you've ever been around someone who is arrogant and prideful, you didn't like that. It wasn't 
enjoyable to be around that person that you kind of looked at that person as like wow like this person's so boastful they're so puffed up right so if we allow our mind to become arrogant or prideful because of our accomplishments and attainments on this path then we're ultimately not going to be able to experience complete enlightenment because the mind still has conceit so as you're making accomplishments along the path and you observe that the mind is becoming arrogant or prideful based on maybe experiencing the jhanas or experiencing the first stage of enlightenment or second stage or third stage or what have you, you're never going to get to that fourth stage of arahant if you allow the arrogance and pride to continue to come into the mind. So what you do is where you observe that with mindfulness is you cut it off and let it go. You literally train the mind to observe that arrogance, observe that pridefulness, that boastfulness. The mind wants to puff itself up and you cut it off and let it go and come back to being humble. Whether it's in your intentions, your speech or your actions, you don't allow this arrogance and pride to permeate in the mind because it's only going to create unwholesome results for you. So where you observe that happening, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the middle and maintain the stability of mind so that it's not shaken up by this arrogance and pride. So if one commented negatively, let's say about my ears, my nose, uh, or even if someone said that uh, Basim, your English is so bad, this shouldn't arise discontentedness in the mind, right? If the self has been eliminated, you shouldn't experience any discontentedness in that situation whatsoever. And that's how the mind is liberated. It's free. It's got this freedom from strong feelings as part of letting go of personal existence view. The mind is no longer shaken up and bound up when it hears this negative speech from somebody about your ears or your nose or your ability to speak English. If your mind is unenlightened, it's going to be shaken up by that. It's going to get angry. It's going to get frustrated or irritated or annoyed or some other discontent feeling because the mind is not liberated. That means anybody can come along and say any old thing that they would like to say and the mind gets shaken up by it. And now there's all these wrong intentions, wrong speech and wrong actions that you're going to create as part of that mind being shaken up and now it's going to produce unwholesome results in the world as you go around and have intention speech and actions that are unwholesome and unskillful so someone who can control their mind and have mental discipline they hear the negative speech and enlightened being isn't shaken up they might actually smile um, as a result of that and uh, you know so as you hear these things you need to train the mind to cut off any arising discontentedness. And the way that you do that is through practicing that eightfold path, that steps six, seven, and eight, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. If you have right mindfulness and awareness of mind, when you hear this negative speech, then right mindfulness is being aware of those four foundations of mindfulness, bodily sensations, feelings in the mind, the condition of the mind in mental objects. So when you hear this negative speech, if you're aware and you have full awareness, right mindfulness through those four foundations of mindfulness, then you'll start observing these bodily sensations coming through the body as discontentedness is getting ready to enter the mind. And if you can cut it off and let it go right there as a bodily sensation, you just saved your mind 
the need to experience those feelings. And the Buddha says someone who can observe discontentedness as a bodily sensation and cut it off and let it go there, that you're close to enlightenment at that point. Because if it goes past the bodily sensations and it becomes feelings in the mind, now you can still cut it off and let it go there, but you weren't as skillful. You weren't as diligent in your practice because you allowed it to actually come into the mind. And perhaps you just need to work on your mindfulness and being able to observe the arising discontentedness more as a bodily sensation. But even still, if you can cut it off as feelings, then that's better than allowing it to now reside in the mind and dwell in that discontentedness because then it's going to start affecting the condition of the mind for multiple hours, multiple days, maybe even a week or two. You're going to be experiencing this frustration and irritation or annoyance or any kind of anger or frustration from this negative comment that somebody says because you didn't catch it at the bodily sensations and cut it off there. You didn't catch it at the feelings and cut it off there. So now it's affecting the condition of the mind more kind of short term, the few hours, few days or few weeks. And then if you don't cut it off and kind of transform the mind and get rid of that as a condition of the mind, now it's going to form these mental objects like something like ill will. Now you walk around with ill will. And maybe this person was a certain ethnicity or a certain race or a certain gender or something. And now you start associating people of that ethnicity as being harmful or bad or unwholesome. And now you've got this mental object of ill will towards people of that same type. And now the mind's holding and clinging on to this mental object. And now whenever you see people of that similar type, you become hateful, you become angry because of this mental object of ill will. And once it's a mental object, it's much harder to uproot at that point. You still can. That's what this whole path is about, is observing all of these conditions of the mind and transforming it. But it's much more challenging there. So what we do is as you get onto this path, there's certain mental objects that are already there in the mind and you become aware of them more and more through this path and you kind of start getting ahead of the curve that you start developing mindfulness awareness of mind more and more readily so that you can catch it sooner and sooner in this process of bodily sensations feelings condition of mind and mental objects if you can catch it sooner and sooner then you save yourself a whole lot of trouble when you just feel the bodily sensations starting to arise cut it off there. Boom. You can go on. You can let it go and move on. Eventually, you get to the point where you've eliminated craving, desire, attachment in the mind. You've eradicated it, that you won't even feel bodily sensations, that when somebody says something, this is where an enlightened being might just smile. Because in the past, as an enlightened being is working towards enlightenment, when they heard those negative things about this physical body or this mind, they would have experienced anger and frustration. And then that would have been slowly diminished where there was just bodily sensations and they were able to cut it off and let it go there. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you can hear those exact same things and there's no effect whatsoever. The mind doesn't experience any feelings. There's no bodily sensations arising. That's where you can just smile and understand that your mind's been liberated because it's no longer shaken up by these things that people say or do around you. Thanks, Richard. That's good, Miranda.
Yes, sir. Um, on Facebook, Amina asks, so the best approach for the mind is to be culturally neutral and not hold tight to nationality? Yes. I mean, it's one thing to understand this physical body was born in America or you're of a certain ethnicity, like there are certain ethnicities that have a deep heritage and a, a deep history. It's one thing to appreciate that history. It's one thing to understand that and really understand it in terms of, you know, this physical body and this existence. But it's a whole nother thing when the mind clings to it and holds on to it, thinking that's who you are as a person. So if I was African-American or if I was uh, Indian-American or if I was Japanese and I had this pride in my nationality and I held on to this or if horrible things happened to my race or my ethnicity in the past and I held on to these painful feelings of things that occurred in the past, then the mind's going to constantly be shaken up and it's going to be discontented as a result of these things from the past. And what we do as part of this path is we bring the mind into the present moment, letting go of all of that. We know that that happened. We remember these things. We remember these hurtful things that have happened, but we don't allow them to shake up our mind in the present moment because we know they're in the past. So if you remain culturally and ethnically neutral, realizing that, yeah, this physical body is of a certain gender, it's a certain ethnicity, when people look at this physical body and they see a certain color skin, they might associate with it as a certain ethnicity, but you in your own mind know that that's not who you are because there is no you there. So as an African-American woman, there are certain challenges that we experience in the world as a result of other people's ignorance and unknowing of true reality. But we don't need to allow that to shake up our mind. So if we remain culturally neutral, as you're saying, not associating with this physical body or this mind as being who we are as a person, then when we hear people say negative and hateful things about this physical body, it's like, oh, really? That's not me. That's not who I am. So like, for example, you know, some people call white people, they call us what crackers, right? If I heard somebody say, oh, look at that cracker, right? I don't see any cracker around here. I don't see anybody who's a cracker. So I don't have any discontentedness when I hear that. And there's same thing with people with certain color of skin. There's these hateful words that people have invented over the years to associate with somebody with a certain color of skin. And when you hear that word, it's like, I don't see one of those around here. So they must not be talking about me because there's no me here. So therefore you stay liberated and you don't have to allow the mind to get shaken up just because you hear this person's hate coming from their, their own mind through their own speech. This is how you get liberated and you can be completely peaceful. Whereas if there's ego, and there's this arrogance, this anger arises, and now the person wants to go teach this person a lesson. You hear this hateful speech coming from someone, and now there's a fight. Now there's a weapon. Now there's a murder. Now there's going to jail for the rest of our life, all because of this arrogance and pride associated with the color of the skin of this physical body or something that's in the mind. Now the person's gone off to teach this person a lesson and what's really happened is there's been this unskillful speech and actions that have resulted in a murder, for example, 
and now we've just ruined our life. We go to jail for the rest of our life just because the mind was shaken up by a silly word. And yes, it's wrong, so to speak, for this person to say these words, but that's their practice. It's affecting them. What they say and what they do affects them. When we allow it to affect our mind, that's when our mind isn't liberated. Someone can pull the strings and we're triggered. But when you let go of all these qualities that we associate with being the self, when you let go of all of that, then people can't trigger you. And now you're liberated. You hear those words. You hear somebody say something about your culture or your ethnicity or your skin color or something like this. And you just smile and just keep on walking and you don't even let it bother you because you can't teach that person. You can't eliminate their hate in that moment. So allowing the arrogance and ego to arise and go over there, I'm going to teach this person a lesson. Well, that's a 30-year-old person. That's a 40, 50, 60-year-old person. If they haven't learned using these words or wrong and hateful at this point, who am I to teach them in the moment that this is wrong? They're experiencing the results of their decisions. They're probably having very difficult and challenging life in all aspects of their life. And I'm not going to allow the contact with this person to arise any kind of discontentedness in my own mind. I'm just going to keep walking and not allow it to shake up the mind. And this is how the mind can get liberated from all, you know, countless number of things that someone might say or do around you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. On Zoom, we have a question from Anel. She writes, does the act of protecting another being from emotional or physical harm and recognition of this stem from sense of personal self the self is all related to yourself, this physical body, where the mind, the unrelated mind falsely believes that there's a self here. It has this misperception, this misunderstanding. If you were protecting someone else mentally, let's just say somebody said something negative about your daughter and you were speaking up and you felt like you had to protect her with some words like, don't talk about my daughter that way, you know, whatever you might say. This is due to your attachment to your daughter. Not, it doesn't have to do with your own personal existence view. This has something to do with your daughter. Now, when it comes to physical protection, that's different, right? Like if somebody was physically beating up your daughter or getting ready to assault your daughter, you would step in and protect that being. Not only your daughter, probably somebody else's daughter too. You would step in and protect that person so that there's not this physical harm that comes to that being. And maybe not in all cases that you would do that, but in certain cases, you probably would protect somebody from physical harm. But that's very different than when somebody just says something off the cuff that is unwise and hateful. You shouldn't feel a need to protect somebody. The best way to protect you is to just keep on walking and you know, kind of remove yourself from the situation because you're not going to teach this person a lesson in the 30 seconds that you're there. Instead, through continuous contact, because of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, because of decisions that we make, we continue to stay in that situation and we yell and we scream and we have anger and arguments. And now it escalates to more and more of a problem. Whereas if you hear somebody being hateful and you just kept walking, this is where the Buddha says the mind is protected. 
you can't physically protect somebody from mental harm. The only thing that can protect somebody's mind from mental harm is wisdom. By learning and practicing these teachings and training the mind, then you protected the mind because you can be walking down the street and somebody say something negative and your mind's completely and fully protected. But when it comes to physical protection, that's a little bit different. If somebody was, you know, going to physically harm you or someone that was around you, you might choose to step in and kind of protect that person physically doing as least amount of harm as possible to protect the person because you're not going to just stand by and watch somebody you know beat up your daughter for example so that's not what the buddha necessarily taught but this personal existence view this self it's all about how the mind associates this physical body or this mind as being who you are as a person, the self-image and self-identity. Like, I am an Indian woman. I am from India. I am Indian. So then when we hear something negative about India, then the mind gets shaken up. Or you hear something positive, then the mind's shaken up with those pleasant feelings. But if you realize that this being Manal was born in India, but that's not who you are as a person, then you can hear something positive or negative about India and be unaffected by it because you don't consider that to be who you are as a person. You just know that there's this physical body in this mind and other people might label you as being Indian or you are from India, but your mind doesn't associate it that way. And that's where the real training comes in, that learning how to say certain words like, yes, I'm from India, but the mind not associating with that as being who you are as a person. And this is where I teach to disassociate the mind with things like I am Indian, or this is my daughter or my son or my husband or my house or my car, all this my, 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 mind. And when we start using other words, like this is the car, this is the house, things like this, then we start kind of training the mind to no longer use the language that reinforces the self because the unenlightened mind thinks there's a self there and we've been trained all of our life to use certain language and certain associations and words that reinforces that there is a self there. But when we start disassociating with the self and we start using different language, now we can slowly train the mind that this is not who we are as a person. And then as you do that and you start observing that your mind is steady and stable in these situations, you might choose to go back to using things like, this is my daughter, because it's kind of easier to say that than, you know, this is the child that came out of my womb 14 years ago or 18 years ago. You know, it's kind of easier to just say, this is my daughter. Or sometimes we might use the first name, like this is Bailan. And anybody who's kind of with my son and I, they kind of know like that's his son because he looks very similar. You know, he's calling him dad, you know, then people kind of figure it out. But while you're training the mind and you're starting to let go of that personal existence view, it's really helpful to change your language and disassociate with anything related to the physical body, which is the self-image or the mind, which is the self-identity as being who you are as a person and just not seeing that as being who you are at all. Well, if parents want and force their children to be successful, maybe in their schools or in their business, to feel that 
our children are better than others' children. Do you consider this happening out of ego? It can be ego. There can be a number of things here. Because remember, whenever we say ego, uh, Basim, then right away we're talking about personal existence view and conceit. Uh, it really helps in a lot of cases to talk about them separately. But if you ever use that word ego right away, think personal existence view and conceit. So a parent could have a certain craving, desire, attachment for their child to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or an artist or something like this. That can be just a craving, desire, attachment. It could be related to the personal existence view that they have this identification of, I want to be the best mom or the best dad. And in order to kind of protect that and maintain that I am the best mom, my child becoming a doctor or lawyer reinforces that I am the best mom. And then it could also be arrogance and pride. This is where people get into really fierce, deep arguments and a lot of controlling between parents and children because there are so many attachments involved in any one thing. So oftentimes you have to dissect it as a teacher when I'm working with a student to figure out, is this just a craving, desire, attachment? Is it related to the personal existence view? Is it related to conceit? Or is it all of these things together? Uh, is it even central desire? Is it the mind craving their child to make a lot of money and that money is going to flow to the parent and therefore there's craving for money? So this is why it's really important for a student to work with a teacher and why only a true Buddha like Gautama Buddha would be able to attain enlightenment by themselves because a student has difficulty to be able to dissect all the different layers in the mind of what is this really coming from? And oftentimes, if there's a lot of intense, strong feelings, it's not just one thing like conceit or personal existence view or craving for their child to be a certain way or craving money. It can be a lot of these things together. And that's where a teacher can ask you questions and kind of walk through it and helping a student to dissect what the real problems are. So then you can actually solve the problems rather than just think that that's normal for a parent to want their child and crave for their child to be a certain way. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's go to the next chapter, 43. Yes, and Miranda is the next volunteer. The observation of existence. Venerable sir, it is said, existence, existence. In what way, venerable sir, is there existence? One, if, Ananda, there were no comma ripening in the sensory realm, would sense their existence be observed? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, comma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in an inferior realm, hell, animal, or afflicted spirits realms. In this way, there's the production of renewed existence in the future. Two, if, Ananda, there were no comma ripening in the form realm, would form sphere existence be observed? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, comma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in a middling realm, human realm. In this way, 
production of renewed existence in the future. Three, if Ananda, there were no Kama ripening in the formless realm, would formless sphere existence be observed? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, Kama is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in the upper realm, heavenly realm. In this way, there is the production of renewed existence in the future. It is in this way, Ananda, that there is existence. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So the Buddha was really well known to use these farming analogies because he used stories in order to help people remember his teachings. Because remember, it was an oral tradition. They didn't write things down because while there was technology that existed to write things down in places like China and Egypt, they weren't really pervasive throughout the world at this time, 2,500 years ago. Humans were still evolving. We had oral languages, and some of those languages were starting to be written down, but in very rudimentary ways through kind of pictures and things like this. So the language that the Buddha spoke didn't even have a script. There wasn't even a script associated with it because it was purely an oral language, an oral tradition. So the way that you get people and help them and guide them to understand an oral tradition and be able to retain it is you use stories. Stories and using analogies about things that they already understand will help them to retain the teachings. And then another thing you do is you have a list. The Buddha is very popular for having lists. With these two things together, having stories and having lists, it really helps you to remember an oral tradition. And then the third thing that he did is he had people recite his teachings word for word for word every two weeks. All the community would come together and they would recite his teachings over and over every two weeks as a way to remember what he actually taught. So with these three things, people were able to remember his teachings after his death when they eventually wrote things down. So here he's using this farming analogy of a field of a seed being planted and then the moisture to grow the plant and grow the seed. So here he's talking about renewed existence and rebirth and essentially saying the gamma that when we make decisions through ignorance and the result of those decisions, this is the field. This is kind of the soil that makes it possible. And now there's this seed, this consciousness and then craving, which is the fuel or the moisture that allows there to be renewed existence. So if we have these unwholesome decisions that are based out of ignorance and the unknowing of true reality, this produces unwholesome results that we're going to either experience in this life, the next life, or some subsequent occasion, which is what the Buddha explains. The goal would be to transform all this unwholesomeness by learning and practicing to acquire wisdom. So now all your decisions are based in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So you're only producing wholesome decisions and there is no unwholesome results. So therefore there is no unwholesome gamma that's going to produce this field in which to now have this seed or consciousness. And then there's this craving, desire, attachment that's feeding that to produce a renewed existence. So if you transform this ignorance and there is no ignorance, 
i.e. an enlightened being is going to have learned, reflected, and practiced to such a point that they've transformed the ignorance to wisdom, there's no more craving in the mind. There's no more anger, or hatred, or ill will in the mind. It's just generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. All the 10 fetters have been eliminated. Then that enlightened being is going to be experiencing complete, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in this life, no longer experiencing discontentedness. So therefore, there's not going to be any gamma to experience in a future life. So there is not going to be this soil, this gamma as the field. And therefore, there isn't going to be the consciousness or this seed. And there's not going to be this craving, desire, attachment that provides the moisture. So having eliminated ignorance, then there's not going to be continuous rebirth in any of these realms. But the Buddha is explaining that when there's ignorance such that it produces unwholesome karma to the degree that there's this unwholesome field, there's this consciousness and this craving, then this inferior realm can be experienced, which is hell, animal, or afflicted spirits. And then there's this middling realm of the human realm, which is what we're experiencing right now. And the goal would be in this human realm to now learn and practice, experience enlightenment so that you're no longer subject to future rebirth. And you'll know that you're doing that because discontentedness will be gradually diminishing. Or there's this third aspect of if you've produced a whole lot of wholesome gamma, but you still haven't experienced enlightenment yet there can be the potential of you being reborn in the heavenly realm, but that's not desirable. Those beings can actually be reborn down into the lower realms. It's not a permanent resting place. Beings in the heavenly realm are experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, oftentimes lacking the motivation to learn and practice to experience enlightenment. They tend to be very complacent. So while you may have been taught that heaven is permanent and that would be a desirable thing to actually accomplish, in the Buddhist teachings, he's saying, no, that this isn't actually desirable. This is still being stuck in the cycle of rebirth. You're subject to rebirth if you don't experience enlightenment in the heavenly realm and you can easily be reborn down into a lower realm. So the goal would be to use this existence in the human realm, this ideal existence, to learn, reflect, and practice so that you can transform this ignorance into wisdom and then practice in such a way that you've extinguished all unwholesome gamma and you're experiencing peacefulness and you'll know that you're doing that as discontentedness gradually diminishes. And I explained this in the explanation underneath of the Buddhist teachings using the five realms, but there's also this right here where I associate you know, this analogy of farming so that you can understand it in a lot of detail. But any questions you guys have, we can talk about them here in class. What questions do you guys have? Doesn't seem to be a question for this time, teacher. All right. So we'll go to this next chapter, which is chapter 44. The conduit to existence. Venerable Sayer, it is said that conduit to existence, the conduit is to existence. What Venerable Sayer is the conduit to existence? And what is the elimination of the conduit to existence? Radha, the desire, lust, delight, craving, engagement, and clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, 
This is called the conduit to existence. The elimination is the elimination of the conduit to existence. All right. Thank you, Basim. So this conduit to existence, a conduit is like a pathway, right? If you think about electricity, there's a conduit, a wire that is going to allow electricity to flow from one place to another place. And the Buddha is explaining here that the conduit to existence, meaning what leads from one existence to the next, what creates one existence to the next. And here he's explaining that it's desire, lust, delight, craving, engagement, clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, the underlying tendencies regarding these five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and consciousness. Because he explains in the Four Noble Truths, his very first introductory teaching, that clinging to the five aggregates is what causes discontentedness. So if there's clinging and craving to these five aggregates, then there's going to be discontentedness. If there's discontentedness, that means the conduit to existence is still there. The conduit is this craving, this clinging. That's what leads from one existence to the other. He explains it in other parts of his teachings even more clearly than this, where he says, craving is the fuel that leads to renewed existence. So if you think about a fire that's burning, if there's a fire burning and this fire is starting to be diminished, if there's this spark that sparks off of that fire and then the wind carries that spark and it lands, now it ignites a new fire. So craving is that conduit, that wind that carries that to the next life. And now there's this spark of this new fire. So this is how renewed existence happens, is that if there's craving at the time of death, then that's the fuel, that's the conduit to your next existence. That's also what's causing discontentedness in this life. And that's why when you diminish discontentedness, you're actually diminishing and eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And as you diminish and eliminate craving, desire, attachment, discontentedness is eliminated. And that's why you're also solving the problem of rebirth, because the same thing that's causing discontentedness is actually causing rebirth too. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you can observe that the discontentedness is diminishing in this life, ultimately eliminated when the mind's enlightened. And that's how you'll also know that you're not going to be reborn in a future existence because the mind is utterly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in this life. There is no more craving that's going to lead to the next existence or having this conduit of existence. What questions do you guys have on this? Yes. As for engagement here, teacher, I'm not clear about what exactly the Buddha was referring to. This is where he talks uh, in other parts of his teachings where he says, like, if you're engaged, you're unliberated, where if you're unengaged, you're liberated. Engaged is like the mind is holding on, grabbing on, you know, like, say, for example, you're at dinner with your partner and they say something and you just have to pounce on it and you have to engage on it and you can't let it go. You just have to discuss it all the way to the end without allowing your mind to just let go and just be like, all right, if they would like to think that way, then just let them think that way. That's their choice. I don't need to try to control this being. I don't need to try to 
force or push or control this person to think the same way that I do, I can disengage and then the mind's liberated. It doesn't feel like it has to control the situation or control this person. So if the mind is engaged, then it's got this craving desire attachment. These are just all words that are being used in order to basically describe the same thing, which is craving desire attachment, wants, expectations, grasping, holding, you know, the mind chasing after the objects of its affection. There's all these different words that are being used to explain that. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So we'll go to the last chapter for today. Just five chapters. Here, this is dependent origination. Well, let's go to Miranda. Dependent origination is the highest law of nature. Monks, I will teach you dependent origination and dependently arisen phenomenon, things. Listen and attend closely. I will speak. And what, monks, is dependent origination? With birth, birth as condition, aging and death comes to be, whether there is an arising of Tathagatas or no arising of Tathagatas, that element still persists. The stableness of the teachings, the fixed course of the teachings, specific conditionality. A Tathagata awakens to this and breaks through to it. Having done so, he explains it, teaches it, proclaims it, establishes it, discloses it analyzes it, illuminates it. When he says, see, with birth as condition, monks, aging and death, with existence as condition, birth, with clinging as condition, existence, with craving as condition, clinging, with feeling as condition, craving, with contact as condition, feeling. The sixth sense basis as condition, contact, with name and form as condition, the sixth sense basis, with consciousness as condition, name and form, with volitional formations, choices and decisions as conditions, consciousness, with ignorance and unknowing of true reality as condition, volitional formations, choices and decisions, whether there is an arising of Tathagatas or no arising of Tathagatas, that element still persists, the stableness of the teachings, the fixed course of the teachings, specific conditionality, a Tathagata awakens to this and breaks through to it. Having done so, he explains it, teaches it, proclaims it, establishes it, discloses it, analyzes it, illuminates it. And he says, see, with ignorance, unknowing of true reality as condition, monks, volitional formations, choices and decisions. Thus, monks, the reality in this, the lack of error, the conciseness, specific conditionality. This is called dependent origination. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So the Buddha does this with dependent origination sometimes where he kind of flips it upside down and he explains it from the bottom up, essentially. Most often when you see him describing dependent origination, he starts with ignorance and then he goes all the way through down to birth and discontentedness. But here he kind of flips it upside down and he starts with birth, aging, and death and then works his way towards ignorance. And when he describes it here, he starts off with explaining how whether there is a Tadagata, which is a fully perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha which existed 2,500 years ago, and the world is currently unaware of one that has existed since his time, that he's saying whether a Buddha arises or not, this is the truth. This is the truth of what's going on here all the time. Whether 
he exists, which he existed during his lifetime and he explained it, or whether he doesn't exist, this natural law, this highest law of nature is going to continually happen over and over and over again. But he says, once a Tathagata, once a Buddha awakens, they break through to this, right? They understand dependent origination very closely. And then having understood it, a Tathagata is going to explain it, teach it, proclaim it, establish it, disclose it, analyze it, and illuminate it so that all other people can understand it. Because by understanding dependent origination, that's how somebody eliminates discontentedness. If you didn't understand dependent origination, you wouldn't be able to actually eliminate discontentedness from the mind. But because it's a more comprehensive teaching, it's not something you learn right away from the beginning. You have to kind of build your practice slowly but surely, learning each foundational teaching to ultimately get to dependent origination where you understand it inside and out, backwards and forwards. And it's a Tathagata, a perfectly enlightened Buddha who's going to have awakened to this dependent origination and then be able to explain it in such a way that it illuminates it and fully helps people to understand it. But for you, you're going to need to really go at this multiple times before you really understand dependent origination. It takes many sittings of reading it and digesting it, absorbing it, thinking about it, reflecting on it, practicing and seeing each of the steps in your own life. And at different points of that progress and that process, reaching out to a teacher and asking for help so that you can understand each individual step or each individual aspect of dependent origination. So here he's saying a Tathagata is going to say, you know, see with birth as condition, aging and death and all the way through all the different steps until ultimately they understand this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. That's what the unelated mind is ignorant of. It's ignorant of dependent origination. It's ignorant of the three universal truths. It's ignorant of the four noble truths. It's ignorant of the full path. It's ignorant of the three poisons. It's ignorant of the natural law of gamma. It's ignorant of the five precepts. It's ignorant of how to develop a meditation practice. It's ignorant of the four Brahma Viharas. You know, we could go on and on and on. There's all these aspects of the teachings that the unenlightened mind is unknowing of or ignorant. Not ignorant in terms of a derogatory word. That's not how the Buddha's speaking here, you know, looking down on people. This word ignorance today is thought of in some places as kind of a derogatory word. And that's why I inserted the unknowing of true reality. Because what the unelated mind has is it has these misperceptions of how the world works and how the world functions. The unelated mind thinks that other people are causing you to be angry. But when you understand dependent origination and all the other teachings that are part of the Buddhist path, then you understand true reality. You understand true reality that it's your own craving, desire, attachment that is causing discontentedness. And then through transforming this ignorance to wisdom, now you can have better decisions. Your volitional formations, your choices and decisions will now be informed by this wisdom. And you will choose to no longer do certain things that maybe you once did. You will start transforming your intention, speech, and actions to now functioning in the world in a very different way. And because you're functioning differently, the people around you will function differently. It's kind of like a log jam. If you're part of a household unit, you're kind of 
in this household unit and you know people have craving anger and ignorance the knowing a true reality well when you start removing your log of ignorance and you start practicing wisdom now the log starts shifting in your household environment and things start to flow a bit different so what the unenlightened mind wants to do is go out and change everybody else it wants to fix everybody else in the world but that doesn't create any lasting satisfaction because you'd have to train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things your way. But instead, what the Buddhist teachings bring us to understand is that it's our own mind that we need to transform. And what we're doing is we're learning this wisdom to transform this ignorance. And now we can transform that craving. And then we can transform this anger. And now when you start functioning the world differently, now this is where you'll experience different results. Because when you're making decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance, it's going to produce unwholesome things in the world. Whereas if you're making decisions through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, you're going to be producing wholesome results in the world. So it's the Buddhist teachings, fully learning the entire path, that you come to understand these things. And dependent origination is one of the key teachings to understand. And the Buddha is saying, you know, whether he exists or he doesn't exist, even though a Tathagata, a Buddha awakens to this and breaks through to it, these same things are going to be happening regardless of whether he's here or not. So it's important that we understand that this reality, right, this true reality, this is the way that it is. But you don't just believe dependent origination. You need to investigate it so that you can learn, reflect, and practice to see the truth. And then you'll see that it's lack of error. There's no error in dependent origination, that it explains truly what's happening, that it's concise, right? That it has this conciseness. And then there's this specific conditionality. This is the ultimate cause and effect. You learn about the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result, the results of our decisions, that everything we experience is a result of our decisions. Well, it's dependent origination that so shows that causality of how ignorance and the unknowing of true reality leads to all these other results, all these other effects that we experience. Because when there's ignorance, there's going to be all this downstream effect of all these other issues which ultimately leads to discontentedness and continuous rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. But when you transform all of that, then you can see this conditionality, this cause and effect. It now starts to make sense to you. And now because of wisdom, you make wiser decisions. And now you've eradicated and essentially dismantled dependent origination. That for an enlightened being, you're no longer operating through craving. You're no longer operating through clinging. So therefore, you're not going to experience any discontentedness. You no longer have that ignorance. You're still making decisions, but you're making them through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, as opposed to the pollutions of mind that are found in the three poisons and the ten fetters. So here the Buddha is explaining dependent origination from the bottom up, essentially. And when you look at it and investigate it both top down and bottom up, you start to be able to more fully understand it. So what questions do you guys have on this? Well, so if ignorance is the root for all discontentedness, then do you agree with me that a 
uh, acquiring wisdom through these teachings is the uh, solution for all this. Yeah, so even though craving, desire, attachment is the cause of discontentedness, the reason why craving, desire, attachment still exists is because of ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, right? So even though we list out the three poisons as craving, anger, and ignorance, it's really ignorance. Because ignorance exists, then a being's craving continues and they continue to cause themselves discontentedness over and over and over again. And they keep wandering and roaming through this cycle of rebirth, experiencing all this anger and other discontent feelings or suffering, as some people use as a translation. But when we transform that ignorance to wisdom, now we understand that we're causing our own discontentedness because of craving, desire, attachment. So now let's transform that craving, desire, attachment. Let's diminish and eliminate that. And then we're also working on eliminating this anger, this hatred, this ill will. So it's really wisdom that unravels all of this. So even though we talk about as craving, anger, and ignorance, you should always be thinking through dependent origination that ignorance is first. With ignorance as condition, all these other things are going to come to be, which is discontentedness. So ignorance is the most significant, the primary hindrance to enlightenment. And it's wisdom that transforms that. And then when you get deeper independent origination, you see that it's craving, desire, attachment, and clinging that is really the true root cause of what's arising this discontentedness. But the only reason why craving exists is because ignorance exists. So it's transforming the mind, learning the Buddhist teachings, gaining this wisdom that transforms all of this to ultimately eliminate discontentedness and the suffering that it causes. Thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, in our next class, which is next Saturday, we're going to be moving into a new book, which is volume seven. It's titled Breathing Mindfulness Meditation. You can download this from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. You can also get a printed version or a Kindle version. You can take it and go print it if you like. What this book entails is it's an extract of all the most important teachings around breathing mindfulness meditation from the Buddha. Because remember, the Pali Canon is in these 45 large, thick books. And it would take many years for somebody to read through all of that, understand all of it, and practice it, and actually gain the results and the benefits of this. So what this book series has done is it takes extracts out of these 45 books, and it pulls together the most important teachings, for example, in that book, about breathing mindfulness meditation. So the Pali Canon isn't really organized in any particular way that you could just go to each of these, but a team of people have pulled together these teachings, consolidated them in one book, and now we can learn the consolidated teachings of the Buddha around breathing mindfulness meditation. And he prioritized this one meditation above all other meditations that he practiced. And you can see that in that book, volume seven, where he makes it a priority. And he says, this is that one thing that essentially is the priority that leads to enlightenment. So we're gonna do chapters one through 10 of that book, and we'll progress through the book that way. 
if I remember correctly, there's about 31 or 34 chapters in that book. So we'll be in that book for about three weeks. And then we'll move on to volume eight, which is the foremost householder. So we're just going to do them in order. And by the end of this year, the very beginning of next year, we'll have done the entire book series. And then we'll just restart all over again. So feel free to download that book, acquire a printed copy, either your own printing or purchasing it through Amazon or getting a Kindle version. Read those chapters ahead of time before class. You'll come to class with more questions and or read it after class as well. You might decide that, you know, that'll help reinforce it and really soak it into the mind. You'll see a lot of repetition in that book, volume seven, uh, because the same things that the Buddha said, he kind of repeats it in other places. So it kind of reads, you know, pretty straightforward with kind of slight differences in his teachings from one chapter to the next. As you have questions, you can ask those here in the online class. You can post them in the Facebook group. You can schedule a personal guidance session, or you can send me a private message if you have a question that you'd like to ask privately. So with all those four methods, either posting it in the Facebook group, either send me a private message, ask in class, or schedule a personal guidance session, slowly but surely, you can build up your wisdom to understand these teachings and then actually practice them. Because that's where the real improvement to the condition of the mind occurs. If we just learn intellectually, that's where you start. But you need to reflect and you need to then move it into practice. That's what really changes and improves the condition of the mind. If you just learn intellectually, it wouldn't create the improvement to the condition of the mind. So you need to actually practice the teachings. That's what really transforms these three poisons or these 10 fetters and eliminates them from the mind is through your practice. And as you need help, I'm here to help you. So I'll see you in next Saturday's class, perhaps. Tomorrow in the group learning program, which is Sunday, we're going to be in volume one, chapter 22, which is titled Mental Health, A Modern Day Delusion. Here I'm going to help you see how a lot of the challenges that you might have experienced in life, whether it's depression or stress or anxiety, even things like ADHD, ADD, bipolar, eating disorders, things like this, they all come back to craving desire attachment. This same primary problem that's causing the discontentedness in the mind. And because it's ignorance, the unknowing of true reality that the mind just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand, we associate these things as being an illness or a sickness and the brain is defective and there's a disorder and we need to prescribe medicines and that's what's going to fix it. But this is our ignorance. This is our unknowing of true reality. So I'm going to help you to see in the group learning program that it really comes back to this craving desire attachment, which is causing all of these problems. And now we can be liberated from thinking that we're sick and we're ill and we have a disorder or defective brain. And then with right view, realizing what the real problem is, then we can actually get the real solution, which is going to eliminate the sadness that we experience with depression or any kind of stress or anxiety or any of these other things. These symptoms that we experience are 100% real. But the cause and what's actually causing it isn't necessarily real. And when we understand what the real problem is through wisdom, now we can actually resolve it through training the mind. So I'm going to explain that to you guys tomorrow in Sunday's class. 
And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. So you're welcome to join for that as well. If you'd like to do loving kindness meditation as a way to support, encourage, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. So I'll see you either next Saturday, perhaps Sunday and Wednesday, or maybe all of those days in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadiha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.